Well, hello and welcome to the Preacher's Podcast. Uh, Professor Mitchell is on seminary campus without power right now, and so the rest of us are hijacking this and taking it over. We've got uh, uh, Pastor Phil Hebner, um, Professor Alan Sorum, and I'm John Scharf, a pastor at Abiding Grace, Covington, Georgia. Uh, we are looking at uh, Lent 3b, Rethinking Religion, uh, Rethinking the Worth of Worship. Throughout the season of Lent, we've been uh, talking about those assumptions that people have about God and how God's word is causing us to rethink them. Uh, Phil, you want to start us off uh, talking a little bit about the theme for this day? Yeah, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, we continue the march here uh, in Lent with Jesus to Calvi Calvary and the cross. And uh, just a quick recap, the first week we rethought trials, tests, and temptations as we thought about uh, Christ and his temptation in the wilderness. Um, and the second week of Lent, uh, we were rethinking suffering under the cross and what it means to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. Now this third Sunday in Lent, we're rethinking the worth of worship. Uh, what does it mean to actually worship God? What does God expect of us? What does God want from us? What does that look like uh, in our lives? A lot of people have misunderstandings about worship, about Christianity, even Christians themselves. Sometimes you find the um, the person who's on the church roster, but maybe never attends worship and, and maybe thinks they worship at home or doesn't really see a value in going to God's house. Or you maybe see the overly pious person who uh, feels like they have to go to worship and they put in their time, so to speak. And by um, putting themselves in a pew Sunday after Sunday, they're doing what God wants, but their heart is far from the Lord. Uh, and so with all of these misunderstandings and assumptions out there in the world, we're going to rethink the worth of worship as we see Jesus and his zeal for the Father's house today. Awesome. Thank you, Phil. Uh, and then to go on to looking at the other readings, the first and second reading and, and the connections around that theme, uh, our first reading is the familiar story of the Ten Commandments. You, know, you think of the scene, the smoke and thunder and trembling at Sinai testify to the truth that God is worthy of awe. His Ten Commandments demand it, worshiping him above all else, which we see Jesus fulfilling in the gospel, that zeal for his father consuming him. But don't miss the reason why. In verse 2 of our Exodus reading here, this is the Lord, the faithful to his promises, God. This is the one who rescued them from Egypt, who rescues us from our slavery to sin and death. Of course we'll want to worship. We'll want to do what he says. Uh, of course we will, we will worship him. And in the second reading, Paul gives us plenty to rethink. The, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. What the world looks at as a waste of time, you know, what we do in worship, is communing with God. The, the beauty of the Passover worship, the power of those sacrifices, the temple leaders had turned that into a checklist of things to accomplish, to worship self and pat yourself on the back for accomplishing what you needed to in worship. And Jesus will flip that all on its head like he flipped the money changer tables and drive it all out of there like he drove out the livestock and their handlers. Um, so as you see the the uh, uh, theme playing out in, in all the readings, let's let's dig into our text a little bit. Um, Professor Sorum, would you uh, uh, get us going on uh, this text from John 2? Yes, I would. I'm going to ask you men to be a little patient with me. This is going to be a little bit unusual. Um, rather than like 
zeroing in on specific words or their use or anything that you'd rather expect in a, a quick exegetical overview, <clears throat> I, I want to focus on interesting implications, if I can. And uh, I, I think a, a real a connection that occurs to me is uh, I, I think of Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman when she talks about what mountain to worship on. Uh, Jesus' response is, we're not so much interested in that external stuff anymore. The Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. I think what this text really clearly powerfully shows us is the spirit of Jesus and his, his concept of uh, he insists, as it were, that his father is uh, properly worshipped. Just as a just as a quick general overview and connection to our theme, <clears throat> um, the first interesting implication or the first interesting conversation I'd like to start is just on the word Passover. Verse verse thirteen begins: "The Jewish Passover was near," and the the Greek word for that is Pascha. And, and what I found very interesting is that the, the word Pascha can be used in three different ways. It can refer to the Passover. It can refer to the Passover meal. And in a couple places in Scripture, in Luke 22 and, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, Pascha refers actually to the lamb itself. It refers to Jesus itself. And, and I think this is interesting. If you just imagine in your mind this rebuilt temple, what made this rebuilt temple so special? It, it wasn't its physical glory. Um, the returning Jews wept when they saw, the, the, in comparison, the glory of the second temple was so far uh, diminished from the first. But what made this temple glorious is that the Son of God, the Holy Messiah, would step into it. And the, pas the Paschal Lamb, on the Paschal Festival, steps into, into Jerusalem's temple. Um, so in uh, just a quick overview of the first two chapters, um, chapter one, we hear John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Spirit descending on him. Uh, right away, we see Jesus calling his disciples. And with those disciples in chapter two, he does his first miracle way up there in Cana of Galilee. So, so far, he's, Jesus has been, um, you know, he's been in the outlying areas beginning his ministry. But now in verse 13, we learn that Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the first, his first celebration of a Passover during his, his ministry. <clears throat> and of course, don't forget that this Passover meal, its main feature was the eating of the whole perfect Paschal lamb. So this is very dramatic <clears throat> on so many levels. The, the city, of course, is just burgeoning at the seams with worshipers. It's that Passover meal that all, I think, uh, every, every male over the age of 12 was required by the law to come to Jerusalem for the Passover meal. So there's so many people. There's also a lot of foreigners <clears throat> who don't have the right pocket change. They don't have the right offerings. So when Jesus 
according, it's kind of reminds me of Mark a little bit that Jesus comes to a city and what's the first thing he do, does? He goes directly to the temple, right? That's his fashion. But in coming to the great, the great temple, uh, as it were, coming to Jerusalem's temple in the courts. And here the, the Greek word is hieron. So it's not real specific. It could have, you know, some commentators want to identify the Gentile court or this court or that court. I'm not exactly sure how they get there because <clears throat> it's, a, it's a general term for the temple or its courts. But surely it's, it's on its way into where the Jews worship. It's on the way into where the Jews need to give their offerings and need to make the sacrifices. And allow me to create a picture for you. Uh, there's a lot of different animals in the entrance area, that area that you have to go through in order to worship. It's full of um, a lot of people um, offering the right change, offering the right coinage to give to give the temple tax to to participate in the worship. And uh I can't imagine a whole bunch of animals and a whole bunch of men doing business being necessarily very quiet about it. I kind of wonder how this potential noise, maybe very noisy noise, kind of spilled into the worship life. I, I just wonder about that. Um, but Jesus doesn't wonder for uh, a second. He sees what's going on. He sees how his father's glory is diminished he sees not only the corrupt the corrupted temple the corrupted leadership the corrupted behavior of the using his father's here and as um, as a emporium a, a marketplace he grabs some ropes now again i just want to paint a picture a picture that comes to my mind uh, don't you think there probably were some ropes around when you're dealing with all of these animals and animals have to be led to where they don't want to go. So you got to have some ropes, but Jesus didn't need a, a, just a rope. He needed a rope heavy enough to accomplish his purpose, which was to drive out everyone and everything. So imagine Jesus grabbing some ropes, imagine him, um, um, twisting them together so that the force of the rope would accomplish its purpose, purpose and drive out animals, drive out people, um, driving out the pontus, that's a, a masculine plural, driving out everyone, driving out the sheep, that's a neuter, neuter plural. He uses this heavy rope and his strong right arm, the, the strong right arm of the Savior God to cleanse his temple to cleanse the the house of my father he calls it just a little interesting thing with the article there he says do not be making present a present imperative or stop making the house of my father into a house no article a house of trading uh, uh, an emporium so again, um, these words just call to my mind a, a crazy exodus of terrified men and spooked animals fleeing from an angry Jesus swinging a heavy whip. I'm sorry, gentlemen, that 
that's a very compelling picture to my mind. And I, I don't think I'm over-dramatizing it at all uh, because I think what you see is a, a righteous zeal that loves the Lord. I, I think the connections to the Old Testament is really interesting. The, the zeal of the Lord, um, a reference perhaps to Numbers 25. And you go to Numbers 25, you read the zeal of Phineas and one of his um, uh, one of his people, probably grabbing, if you will, a Baal prostitute, goes into the tent to, as it were, worship with the Baal prostitute. What does Phineas do? He goes in with a spear and he drives it through both of the, the so-called worshipers of Baal. And, and because of his zeal for the house, God backs off the plague, right? Or... Um, well, you think of another connection with Psalm 69, where, you know, it actually says the zeal of the, of the, David's talking about his love for the Lord, his zeal for the house of the Lord brings on him um, hatred and uh, persecution from others around him who don't share his zeal for the Lord. So with these Old Testament pictures that John is drawing on, He's showing you where that zeal is coming from. Jesus is offended at the corruption that he sees among his people in the worship of his father. And when he is encountered with that corruption in their worship, his, the, the smell of that, more so than the smell of all these animals, but the smell of their corruption just leads him to this righteous indignation on behalf of his father for the impurity and the corrupt nature of their worship. Of course, the corrupt Jews, uh, they want a sign. You know, give, give us a sign by which you, they don't argue that he has the authority to do it. You know, everybody's cleared out, right? There, there, nobody said, wait a minute, Jesus, stop. Where, where do you get the authority to do this? No, after the fact, the Jews, that no doubt the Sanhedrin Jews, they say, where, where, where do you get this authority? Now, here comes one of Jesus' incredible proverbs where he says, destroy this temple, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it again. Now, here Jesus doesn't use herein. He uses the word naos. And that word naos is specifically... Um, I think, I'll, I'm just going to say it's referring to the Holy of Holies. It's referring, and I think in, you can make this case, and if you look at Hebrews, um, I, I think Naos refers to that Holy of Holies to which the sacrifice of Jesus has given us access to the true uh, God, not the pretend access of the uh, whole, most holy place in the tabernacle, but the actual presence of the most high God in his naos. Jesus says, you destroy this temple, this naos, and in three days, I will build it up again. It seems to me that Jesus is aligning himself to the true presence of God. Uh, he, there's certainly an inference here, a witness, as it were, of Jesus as the way to the true entrance of God, which he accomplished. He fulfills this prophecy, of course, by his dying. Uh, he completes his mission by dying and then verifies the successful completion of it by his rising. 
And I, and I think you really need to pay attention to the subject of that verb. I will raise it. I will raise this naos. Um, that's a, a pretty compelling picture, I think, where Jesus, he, he's, he, he makes claims. His authority is that he does only what God can do. Again and again, we see Jesus do only what he can do. And the ultimate thing that he alone can do is raise himself from the dead. So those are some interesting things I see in the text. Awesome. Thank you very much. And you know, as you were talking about the uh, uh, picture of what's going on in worship there, just want to suggest if the brothers haven't read it yet, pick up uh, Edersheim's The Temple. Uh, great section walking through uh what goes on at the Passover, what goes on at worship. And just, you know, you you kind of can get overwhelmed with the the awe of how cool that would have been. You know, you're you're coming to the city and you hear the responsive psalms and 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 you know how beautiful this could be. And then Jesus gets there and it's not that. Um instead there's the the sounds and smells of the animals and the the barking of the the money changers and and all of that. So yeah, thank you for that. Um Bill, anything to add on the text itself? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many things to think about here. And uh, I think Alan did a great job of painting the picture of the scene. And, you know, there's the sights and the sounds. And I also thought about the smells uh, of with all the animals and the people and, you know, just the commotion of the crowd. And uh, what a stark contrast to the first reading where you're at Mount Sinai and you have the, the glorious presence of God. And it's like, no one, no animal come near this. Don't even touch it or you're going to die. And you think about, uh, I guess it comes down to, to me in my mind, like what exactly is this place? And what exactly goes on here at this temple, at this house of God, this place of worship? Who actually dwells there? And why are we even going there in the first place? To worship this holy God who, of course, has his holy laws and commands, but also comes to us with his grace and with his promises as the Lord, the compassionate and gracious and merciful God. Um, and to think that it was so overrun, as you so aptly described, I mean, man, they were just so far off base uh, of what the purpose even was or who their God even was. Um, so maybe I guess my mind then kind of goes to modern applications. I think too easily, you know, we kind of sometimes ingest and sometimes not just throw this story out there as to why the youth group shouldn't sell grilled cheese sandwiches um, in the in the narthex, you know, to raise money for a mission trip. Um, but it's it this is more about money, right? Or this is more about selling stuff at the church campus. Uh, it's about understanding th that zeal, that passion for the Lord and for his house. And so uh, how many different modern examples might we have? Um, recently, I was in a trip over to Europe and Italy, and I, I was at some of the these massive cathedrals, you know, and I think of a similar kind of money situation where you have these beautiful cathedrals meant to glorify God. And oh, boy, do they with the architecture and the design and uh, for example, in Milan, the beautiful Duomo there uh, of Milan, you know, now they have this giant LED billboard like New York City pasted on the outside of it. 
and you got to charge you they charge you money to go in just to see it and then they charge you money to go downstairs just to see the catacombs and then they charge you money to walk up the steps to see the top and then an extra two euros so that you can take the elevator and make it easier and then they charge you money so you can look in the little telescope thing overlooking the city and it's like that you know all over europe um where like what was even the purpose of this place um to begin with well maybe we don't have that as much in america uh, but there are certainly times where we just don't understand what's even the purpose of coming to God's house and the holiness of, of the Lord. And uh, we think of just putting in your time with an empty heart and a mind so um, busy, rapidly speeding through your schedule for the day and the other stuff you have to accomplish. Uh, I think of um, post-COVID times where there is a lost passion for being in God's house and it's just not that important to be there in the presence of the Lord. Uh, and so there's so many ways where our heart it does not have this zeal that we uh, see God asking from us, but also see in our perfect Savior and substitute that passion for God's holiness, the passion for God's house, the passion for glorifying him and how important it is to maintain that holiness and to be in his gracious, loving presence. Uh, so I think there's just many applications of this. And we see one little snapshot in um, ancient Israel of how they had gone astray. But it's not just about the money or the animals. It's about well, what's in the heart, I think, that we really have to zero in on here. Yeah, how did it get to that point, right? You know, the, they had lost the the purpose of it all um, so that it, they got there. But but then there's Jesus and, and that perfect substitute, right? We're passionate as we ought to be when we think about what this means coming into God's house and and caring about that uh passionate to to substitute in both ways right uh in in being that perfect uh uh the one with the perfect zeal for the Lord's house and then and then willing to um having having the zeal to uh fulfill what it took to pay for our price of not having that perfect zeal you know he he makes the prophecy he speaks uh early on here in his ministry he speaks he's he's looking forward to what he has come to do uh to be that passover lamb that alan described so so beautifully um yeah thank you uh how about uh oh yeah go ahead phil well, I was just going to ask, as we we're talking about this, and, um, you know, I mentioned sometimes maybe we stretch this a little bit or just focus on the money part, but I'm interested to hear from either or both of you, you know, how would you focus in on the law part of this text? You know, because I think it's easy to just talk about abusing God's house or selling money you know, in God's house, but we really, as we're saying here, got to focus more on the heart. Well, what aspect of the heart would you brothers see as like a specific point of law to really target as you're preaching a sermon on this text? I'm interested to hear what, what you guys would say. Sure, go ahead, Alan. Well, I'll start. I'll give you a moment to think, John. <clears throat> but I'm part-time outreach pastor at, my, at the congregation I attend. Uh, they actually called me to be their part-time outreach pastor. And that allows me to focus on, it, it's a great thing. I have my day job. I get to be at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, but in my discretionary time, I get this great opportunity to encourage outreach, to advocate outreach, to teach people for outreach. And I just had, uh, we had a great meeting uh, with our evangelism team just a couple nights ago where we talked about seeing incredible energy in this group, but 
you know, does it seem that there's a little bit less energy, less excitement in the, in this group? I won't get into details. I don't want to, you know, (laughs) embarrass anybody in my own congregation, but I was, as you were talking, Phil, I was thinking about preaching on this. I know, I know we're uh, doing this for a year from now, but I want to cheat and bring this up in this next Sunday or two, because uh, the, the, the zeal and the excitement of worship is a reflection of our relationship with God, right? Like David dancing as the Ark of the Covenant came into his capital, the joy of his relationship. He didn't care who saw him celebrating his, the, that symbol of the presence of God coming into his holy city. And, and just to talk about this as this is appropriate, this is normal, this is how it could be if you just, just think for a minute what this great God has done for us and will do for us. And and here's a benefit. This isn't the purpose of the zeal. I'm not reducing zeal to a tactic, an outreach tactic. But imagine being a guest or visitor, coming into a, a church full of people who don't care what you think of how excited they are to be with God in a worship place where they're celebrating with their fellow Christians. And, and so I think a law point that I, I wouldn't hesitate to make is say, you know, don't, you don't get to sit there like a bump on a log because that's your comfort zone. You've always sat here. You've always just kind of like chilled here. You come in a minute before the church starts, you leave the minute after church ends you know, is, is that really the witness you want to give? Let's think about what, what are you saying about your relationship with God? Is that true? Is it possibly true? But then what do other people reflect on when they see that kind of worship? There are implications of our worshiping together that we encourage each other, that we celebrate together. I'm kind of, I'm kind of launching. I'm sorry about that, but uh, this text seems to be really incredibly relevant to how we uh, come together as a people and, and what the implications of that joyful celebration could be. Yeah, you know, just like you contrast what Passover worship could have been and what uh, it looked like, uh, what does ours look like? And you think about what we do in worship, right? I mean, we stand up and confess, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And sometimes that's just, okay, let's see, the ushers got to get ready for the offering. And, you know, and, and that's what's going through the head uh, instead of, wow, we, God, you know, that, that hymn verse, God himself is present. Let us now adore him. You know, he alone on his throne is our God and savior, praise his name forever. And sometimes we, we, speak through the the repetitious parts of the service uh like it's just something i gotta check off the box and 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 get to next um and i love the point you make about the uh the witness that it gives you know being in a, a mission congregation boy it makes a huge difference when people are singing out or not um you know that that because a lot of people coming in they're not used to singing <laughs> they're not you know and and to hear others doing it, or if they're not hearing others doing it, that that makes a difference too. Um, yeah, so I, I think you know, as far as the the malady, you know, not 
not realizing what we're doing, uh, letting it be, well, I gotta, I gotta go to church. I did my God thing. And now I'm, now I'm good to go for the week. Um, yeah. Phil? And I think that that specific malady then has different applications for each person's heart and life, right. In practicality, right. as, as you brothers are kind of saying, you know, so whether that's the people who just put in their time and kind of go through the motions or they're thinking ahead to gathering the offering, like you say, and they're not thinking about the words they're confessing. Uh, you think about the father who is dragged into church next to his wife and is barely even opening his mouth um, for singing because it's not cool. Well, what are you teaching your children? You know, or the or maybe the application to the parents who so gladly and eagerly sign their kids up for every AAU, everything which conflicts with Sunday. And uh, well, zeal and passion for AAU basketball consumes them, mm -hmm. but not for the Lord's house or for the, the retired couple. You know, again, every person is going to be different who has a zeal and passion when I uh, was in Florida, you know, for going to every fun event, we're going to go um, to all the golf tournaments that are anytime they're near us. And it doesn't matter if it conflicts with this or that we're going to go to this event and that event. And, you know, in other words, zeal and passion for so many worldly things consume us uh, anything, but uh, zeal and passion for God's house. And to think about the moments that we have, and you've um, each name just a little bit of being in God's presence, confessing our faith in him, um, humbly confessing our sins and joyfully receiving announcement of forgiveness. Or even the, you talk about the Passover and the Passover lamb and to be face to face and to our lips with the, the great lamb who was slain at, at his meal, to actually receive that meal, you know, and to do that just haphazardly or carelessly or to walk through the motions with with communion uh, rather than with a sense of awe and joy and a tear in the eye that the holy god is welcoming me welcoming me here in love and forgiveness into his presence um, that our hearts just go so far astray from everything having to do with our gracious god his presence and his house uh, and so I think there's lots of opportunity for application uh, on that specific malady that we're talking about. And, and just to tag on that, think about what we sing as we come forward to receive the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, o Christ, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And here the Passover lamb is in his temple. And, you know, all of these pictures just so beautifully, you know, um, there's something to the the historic liturgy, the the things that... Christians for thousands of years have thought this is a good thing to have here. Um, and when we when we let it sink in, uh, boy, gospel all over the place. So to kind of use that to transition where we've already been getting into it a little bit. So the uh, we talked about the malady, the, the specific gospel then. Um, either of you want to touch on that, Ellen? The <clears throat> passion really is for us, isn't it? Yeah. That's a that's an incredible gospel idea right there. That that this passion is really for the universe, the planet, Jews and Gentiles together, being washed and redeemed and purchased by what the Lamb has to go through. And I like how you said that uh, he's starting his ministry 
talking about that. That's really, really significant. He he begins his ministry knowing that he is that perfect lamb that's about to be sacrificed, the blood of whom is going to save the world. And his passion is to get us into that presence of the the Most High God. That that's a that's a thought, isn't it? Absolutely. I think about uh, the baptism of our Lord, uh, where where He says, "This is my Son, whom I love. With Him, I am so pleased." And you see now, contrarily, the Son's love for the Father and the zeal for his house and that passion back and, and that in our baptism, we are wrapped in that perfect zeal of Jesus, that perfect love of the father, which we so sadly and so often fail to have in our own hearts and that we would be wrapped in that perfection and that the Passover lamb would go to be slain to pay for what we have done. Uh, just the in incredible gospel thoughts there of what, um, Jesus would do. And, and just, I guess the thought as Alan was speaking there too, that came to my mind is that we have such a, a gracious God who, who comes after us. The shepherd goes after the sheep who are lost. I mean, what if he just left us to our apathy or to our arrogance or to our misuse and abuse of his house and just said, well, that's how you're going to treat me. Okay, fine. Have at it. But no, the good shepherd enters, enters the fray and goes after the sheep because he wants so much for us to know who God really is and to know what his house really is and to know what our God really offers us by his grace. You know, so uh, Jesus accomplishing all of this all at once uh, is just such powerful gospel love. Yeah. Awesome. So as you think about uh, preaching on this, uh, what are your thoughts? What, uh, uh, Themes, outlines, uh, illustrations. I can start. I'll admit, Go ahead, I, I was going to say, I'll admit, I've never preached on this text before. Okay. Uh, so I was kind of just thinking through, you know, what, would I start with something just on the concept of zeal in my theme? I don't have a specific one to tell you right now, um, but I, I think somehow a theme would probably focus around uh, zeal somewhat or, or that passion. Uh, or however you want to uh, talk about that. Um, but I, I, I wonder if have either of you preached on this text before, because I have not yet. So my uh, uh, this this will be my third time. I'll be preaching it this Sunday. But uh, my first time uh, early on was uh, consumed by zeal. And then part one, uh, to keep God's word, part two, to fulfill uh, God's promise. So you have his... Uh, um, uh, active and passive obedience as he he fulfilled it uh perfectly and and that zeal and of course you know it, it's getting in toward the uh uh college basketball play you know uh either conference championships or getting into march madness depending on where it falls um and you know you talk about that passion that the fans have and and you know there's a lot of applications then for uh how how we feel about what's really important um and then the next time i preached it was in a series uh, actually, the one that uh, is in the commentary on the proper's year be uh, now the the battle series. You know, all throughout Lent, the battle is on, and so I, I've kind of borrowed that for a theme. Uh, and the battle is on battleground worship. Uh, it, it this account, you know, that this beautiful story uh, fits in well uh, with that. It also uh, this year I'm going to be using it uh, um, 
you know, rethinking, we're doing the rethinking religion um, uh, theme. And uh, so rethink worship is going to be my, my theme this Sunday. And we're recording a little later in the week. So I've already written my sermon. So I can tell you that that's, that's actually my, my theme, but uh, um, yeah. And I, I love the, the, the pictures of the Passover worship, what it could have been versus what it is, our worship, what it is versus what uh, what God privileges us and blesses us to let it be. And you get to to close out the sermon with a little bit of uh, uh, a walkthrough of what we do in worship and how cool it is. Um, so I'm kind of excited about this one. Yeah. Yeah, I mentioned that uh, <clears throat> uh, having done this uh, study and talk, having talked about it with you, I really am eager also to write this sermon. And what, what I'm thinking right now, based on our conversation, is some you know start off with a question like, "What do you do with Jesus' zeal?" Uh, first, talk about well, how about enjoy it? Let's enjoy it. It's his zeal, his passion, his energy that it's for us, so that we can join him in this righteous worship of. God that we can be in his presence and and how how exciting that is um, as you juxtapose it to what he's experiencing as he goes walking into his temple and then the the second part of the sermon would be reflecting his zeal and to picking up on all the things that we've been talking about is what are the implications of our excitement What's our excitement connected to, and how do how do others around us, um, how how are others around us edified and, and encouraged by that? That's what I'm thinking at this point. Awesome. Go. I would just say that I appreciate your application of zeal. I, I'd hope that the preacher, um, of course, focuses on on Christ here and the specific sin and malady that we've been talking about, but also has some great application of the joy that really does belong to us through Christ. And I think back to the Psalm 69, um, which is quoted there, and the zeal of, of the house of the Lord, uh, written by David. And if I remember the context of that, David you know, with enemies away from where he's supposed to be, right? He can't go to God's house like he wants. And just um, being prevented from being there and that zeal for wanting to be in God's house so much. And I think both of you brothers said so well that when we truly understand this Passover lamb, Jesus, um, and what he has done for us and who he really is and how he sheds light on who God really is, how can that not just fill us with a zeal and a passion. And I need to be in God's house. I need to be in the presence of the Lord, the created with the creator, the, you know, a sinner to come before the forgiving God and to receive the good gifts of his grace in worship. So I appreciate that you highlighted that. I hope uh, preachers would do that out there as well, just to have that gospel application of the joy for God's house that can be ours, the zeal and the passion, which comes just from Christ and from his gospel. So thanks for highlighting that. I appreciate that. Awesome. Thank you guys. I think that that probably wraps it up unless you got any other closing thoughts. Great. Well, blessings brothers, as you uh, preach this text and um, give your people a chance to appreciate what a, what an awesome God we have who allows us to be in his presence. God bless your day.